back in my body. Originally I thought I'd write something about this confusing and scary time we are living in, but I realised I didn't know what I'd say that hasn't already been said. I wanted to write to provide answers that I didn't have. All I know is that this isn't easy, and we are all trying our best to do what we can to navigate this complicated time to be alive. It might be difficult for some time, and something of this scale is hard and painful to process. So it seems to me of utmost importance that we prioritise being compassionate to one another and to ourselves in equal measure. At other times in my life where I've been living with that toxic cocktail of uncertainty and deep fear, my mental health has spiralled. Knowing this, it's no wonder that right now everyone is oscillating between feeling completely fine, another natural reaction to traumatic events, and overwhelming panic. I've been trying my best to be gentle with myself when I don't feel good, because this is big and it is scary. So I've thought a lot about and tried to follow the advice my therapist gave me on our last session in September. I was lucky to be ending that chapter in a good mental headspace, stronger and happier and more myself than perhaps I'd ever been. But knowing I wasn't going to have that weekly slot to debrief what was going on and have someone help me work through the hard bits, I was filled with uncertainty, which was well documented as something I found to be extremely difficult. And so, he told me, At times when you're feeling unmoored and too much in your head, ground yourself in what you do know and what knows you. Your friends, your family, the things you like to do. They will help you come back to yourself. Fear and panic is an expected response when globally we are going through something as massive and terrifying as this pandemic. It's also vital to try and make some space for calm and peace and happiness. This isn't the answer to everything, but I hope that piece of advice helps encourage you to take some time to step away from that constant panic and come back into your body, to yourself. I know from experience that living in that constant fight or flight is categorically not good for anyone. Carving out time to unwind and take your mind off things is a small thing you can control. You know what you like to do, what makes you feel good. You get to choose that for yourself. It doesn't have to be writing a novel or screenplay. It doesn't have to be a crazy workout, but it can be if that's what you want. Do what's right for you. I sincerely hope that you and your families are safe and well, that you're able to stay home if possible. And if not, I'm so grateful for you and the important work you do. Where would we be without you? I hold love in my heart for those who have been lost, their families and friends. And more than ever, I hope we see the other side of this sooner rather than later, that we come out of it having learned some valuable lessons. For me, grounding at the moment has been a lot of yoga, reading and writing, and I decided to offer up, as a bit of an escape from the turmoil of the world right now, a short story that I've been intermittently working on for a while. Please refrain from dropping your jaw to the literal floor when I tell you it is a homosexual love story. A gay meat cute. At the coffee shop, because where else? I hope you enjoy and that it makes you smile. I feel the simplicity of the interaction hits a lot harder in these socially distant times. Sending all my love to you wherever you are. Jamie By the time I met Gareth, I'd ticked off a lot of things I wanted to achieve in life. I lived in a nice one-bedroom flat. Not the most spacious, not the fanciest, but it was mine. Being alone was a blessing. 
I'd long exhausted living with flatmates and grew tired of the toilet bowl never being replaced and the sink always being full of dishes. I was financially stable, no longer living paycheck to paycheck. In fact, I could afford a quality of life that seemed unfathomable during my early 20s. And doing it all in London, notoriously expensive to exist in, I felt like I'd won a jackpot. Of the things you're supposed to aspire to, I had many. Life was good. Sometimes it was even great. And yet, what I didn't have, or had never experienced in the way I came to with Gareth, was love. As a teen and through my years at university, I had always presumed it was just around the corner, or when I'd met a guy, dated a guy, slept with a guy, I'd seen the potential for it right in front of my face, projected my greatest fantasies of a love that would change everything onto him, him being interchangeable with so many men over the years. From the first encounter with someone new, my ability to immediately invent a detailed picture-perfect life that we'd have together, that was somehow intrinsically linked to the way that we'd met that day, was unmatched. I yearned deeply for a reciprocity and love that always seemed to be just out with my reach. Even in intense moments of sexual passion, I often felt somehow as if I was more at risk of vulnerability than my partners, unable to separate the physical from the emotional in a way they all seemed to find easy. To my eye, they were able to enjoy it, or not enjoy it, for what it was, slightly removed, safe. Whereas I was only ever a moment away from sinking in a sea of feeling. If I felt it, as I occasionally did, I had no choice but to believe in it, it being the supposed truth associated with that rare feeling I could feel with a man, those perfect ones, the ones you remember forever, even if you know in hindsight they clearly meant nothing at all. Immediately consumed would I be with the storyline I believed and desired would follow their inception. I found meaning in things that were often completely meaningless. I could write dissertations on a forehead kiss that in retrospect was barely worth a sentence. I thought everything was a sign. That if he smiled sleepily when I traced shapes on his shoulders with my fingers in the morning, that he was doing so because he felt he'd finally found the person he wanted to do that for the rest of all mornings. A text message received in the evening, irrelevant of its subject matter, was evidence that nighttime, arguably the loneliest part of the day, was one he longed to spend with me, and only me. I could bend the truth any which way to my liking, and if I'd committed myself to doing so, I would do so with full force, no holds barred. Nothing or no one could stop me. From the first incantation of a flutter I felt for a man, I let myself live in a dreamlike state I created until something burst my bubble of blueberry-scented bliss. But by the time I met Gareth, you would never have believed any of that. About someone else, perhaps, but not about me. After almost a decade of thinking what I was looking for was just around the corner, of falling fast only to hurt deeply in the aftermath, of wishing, hoping, trying to embrace my vulnerability with each new guy, hoping he saw in me what he'd been afraid to share himself, I grew tiresome. And slowly, over time, my romanticism wilted like a flower that could have had so much more life and bloom had it only been treated with the care it required. I became the sort of person so busy, excelling in their career, that wondered, who really had the time? A proclamation that would have been considered vulgar by my formerly romantic self. But time, experience and circumstance had changed me, and I acclimatised myself to the idea that perhaps I was becoming a cliché, 
the modern man with a good career who didn't feel the need to settle down. I could enjoy my life to the full and be alone. I sometimes attempted this as an affirmation in the mirror. I had to try and convince myself because it was something I had never considered before. My yearning to love and be loved back not only dwindled, I started to truly doubt the possibility of its existence altogether. I focused instead on curating a life that was entirely mine, embraced the ability to be so shamelessly selfish. I could do what I wanted. So I did. I know it's not for everyone, but it worked for me, I would say, meaning it most of the time. I don't think anyone doubted my happiness or contentment. In a lot of ways at work and amongst friends, I became the poster boy for the successfully single gay man. I had my shit together. I took care of myself physically and mentally. I was successful, by external means. All of this a far cry from the young gay man who arrived in London many years before. I also didn't frequent the hookup apps anymore. I'd found plenty of validation and escape there in my younger years. But as time went on, the interactions became to me more empty transactional almost, to the point that when I was getting changed and ready to leave another random, handsome man's flat, sometimes knowing little more than his name, if even that, I'd look at him and feel a sadness that weighed on me for days and days afterwards, his face lingering in my mind, but not because I wanted to see him again, simply thinking about what we shared and how we were still no more than strangers. In some ways I felt more distant from these men I slept with than anyone else in the world. I'd think for hours if anyone else was thinking that too, and I doubted it. Plus, the encounters often coincided with the hedonism I was no longer engaging in. I also, annoyingly, had become one of those people who really just didn't have the time. I used to hate those people. I stopped pursuing dating of any kind. My sexual encounters were few and far between, usually only taking place intermittently when I'd lapse my responsible head and drink a little too much. This usually involved indulging the part of myself I tried to control, the romantic. It appeared like clockwork on those evenings, usually after the fourth vodka soda, and before I knew it I'd be drunk in love, dancing down Old Compton Street holding hands with someone, anyone, did it matter? They'd stay the night and they usually didn't leave their numbers but I knew I wouldn't have called them anyway. During the night, while we talked and their eyes sparkled as we laughed and talked about everything and nothing, I'd briefly entertained the idea that something more might be there if we were willing to let it. But by the morning I'd find the notion almost laughable as my defences firmly replanted themselves after temporarily lowering alongside my inhibitions. In the morning, I was most protective of the life I'd created as an antidote to loneliness, which worked surprisingly well with one condition. I couldn't let anyone in. It was a grey, drizzly Tuesday afternoon in November when I first saw him. I walked into the coffee shop, which was decorated in a minimalist fashion, muted tones and pastels only. Erica Badu was playing softly in the background. I went to the counter and ordered an Americano from Gareth. For here or take away? He smiled at me. One of his many different smiles that I would eventually have intimate and encyclopedic knowledge of. This one was charming, but I suspected it to be a customer service smile. It still contains warmth, but underneath it all still says, I'm only here because I'm being paid to be. Take away, I said, somewhat sheepishly, suddenly aware of myself. 270 please. Contactless, he said, as I fumbled for my phone in my pocket. 
He yawned, then waved his hand at me apologetically. I nodded. I felt my face start to get hot. He navigated the till with ease, barely thinking, muscle memory dictating his movements. Despite his stillness, I could sense in him a whole world vibrating within. Anxieties, energy, ideas and plans that were being stunted by his need to be here, charging people for coffee. There was no doubt there was some place else he'd rather be. I suspected he deserved to be there. He pointed to the card machine where the price lit up and I hovered my card above it, praying the contactless would work. Sometimes it didn't, and it always left me awkward, flustered, fumbling like a grandparent with an iPhone. In this case, thankfully it did work the first time, and I quickly let out a sigh of relief, hoping it was well disguised as afternoon fatigue. He smiled again, this time a different smile. No teeth, just lips curving gently upward. The shop was quiet, so my coffee was ready almost instantly. His colleague placed it down on the corner next to the till and card machine. He looked down at it, then back at me. There you go. Have a good one, he said. I quickly made my way outside, affronted by the cold air and the racing thoughts that were doing laps inside my head. Was that what I thought it was? Did he feel that too? His smile. Oh my God, his smile. Sometimes when you know, you know. How ridiculous. He's a stranger. You're romanticising. He's a flirt. It's practically part of the job. Or, are you just frightened because for the first time in forever you felt something? I could barely keep up with myself, my hand burning on the coffee cup for which I'd forgotten to pick up a sleeve. I was so busy mulling things over, it took a few seconds to register the voice shouting behind me, accompanied by the sound of feet smacking the pavement. Excuse me! I turned, smiled, then furrowed my brow, I didn't know what feeling it was, but I thought I was about to burst. There he was. Your payment didn't go through. I'm so sorry, said Gareth. He was giggling, almost. Nervous in the most endearing way. He'd clearly run as fast as he could to catch me. I knew from experience in these jobs that £2.70 was nothing to these companies. Knowing that encouraged me to indulge the possibility that he wanted to run after me, desperate for one more second to bask in the unsettling electricity in the air between us. This was a sign, or, if not, a second chance, if there had ever been one. Silence hung in the air as he caught his breath. I let it hang a little longer before returning to the reality of the situation. I grabbed my face, shaking it with embodied embarrassment. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I didn't even wait to check. I might have some cash here, actually. I dug into my pocket for this change I spoke of, secretly hoping it wasn't there, contemplating denying its presence if it was, scheming ways to elongate these moments with him. I glanced up briefly as I felt the edges of the coins in my coat. He looked at the ground awkwardly, all the while fiddling with his belt loops, gently tapping his right foot. In time, I'd come to know the intricacies of his physical habits like you know your way around your childhood home in the dark. But when I took a look at him then, I knew there had to be more to this story. I had to see him again. I had to know more about this person who had stumbled into my day and within minutes I'd considered more than I'd considered anything in a long time. There you go, I said, as I lifted the coins out of my pocket and placed them into his palm. Sorry again. He looked relieved. I wondered, did I misread this all? 
was the nervous tension I'd presumed, in fact, discomfort on his part. I tensed up. I felt defensive, hurt. When he spoke again, I noticed I was already hanging on his every word when he said, It's honestly my fault. Thanks for being cool about it. See you around. He almost sang it, a carefree song, before he skipped off. I felt confused and oddly alone. I shook myself off and headed back to work. I'd wasted an extra five minutes and had lots to do. Every so often though, my mind would dart back to the encounter, still trying to understand what exactly had taken place, playing it over and over and over, trying to make sense of it. What made the least sense to me was his nerves. They seemed somehow inappropriate. At the counter he'd seemed confident, not easily phased, but once he caught up with me and waited for my response, he retreated. Had he wondered if I'd refused to pay? He seemed vulnerable, bashful even. It was the part of things that was most confusing to me, the bit I kept returning to in between my admin to-do list. It was the red flag too, that made me presume we were on different pages, that his story was different to mine. We were two separate guys having two separate conversations simultaneously. And then, I saw it. The jigsaw pieces fit together with a satisfying crunch. My heart thudded against my chest. I was lightheaded. How did I miss it all this time? The coffee cup that sat next to my computer screen, white with the shop's logo stamped on the side, also had a message scribbled on in Black Biro. A phone number. It said, text me sometime. Gee.